If you haven't been here recently, we've been working through the book of Matthew. And we've been in Matthew 10 uh, for a couple weeks now, I think. Um, last week, though, was a very important message about the costs of being sent out by Christ on mission. So the title of last week's message was The Cost of Mission. And the costs are extensive as we studied. And I said at the end of last week's message that it would be a shame for anyone to have walked away from that. Because we looked at what, what should we expect as we follow Christ in this world? And it was arrest, betrayal, hatred, slander, persecution, death, right? Very extensive costs. But I said at the end, it would be a shame if you walked away from that message feeling hopeless or dejected because the comforts far outweigh the costs. And so I'm glad that you're here today as we begin to study the comforts in Matthew 10. But if you missed last week or if you weren't able to catch that message, I encourage you after today to go back because it's going to give you a lot of great context for what we're studying today. As we go through this life, it's, a, it's an important reality to understand when the rewards outweigh the costs. Because oftentimes in life, we come up to something and we say, hey, we're going to weigh the pros and cons, right? And, and see if this is something that we want to do. Like having kids. Pro, they're adorable. Con, they're monsters. Pro, they love you like no one else could. Con, they drive you crazy like nobody else could. Pro, you could make a disciple of Jesus. Con, you could make an axe murderer. You know, you just don't know what you're going to get. It's kind of a toss-up, right? <laughs> but I think actually having kids is a good example to kind of kick off what we're looking at today. Because people today especially are weighing the cost, the literal cost of having children, right? They're actually really weighing the financial cost of should we have kids or not, a lot of young adults. And more often than not, unfortunately, in our society, they're buying into the idea that kids are a bad deal. They're not a good investment. It doesn't help that so many sources in our culture are feeding lies to young adults about what it actually costs to have kids and I mean the actual financial toll that it can take, because in a society that's increasingly trying to destroy the nuclear family, we know that the biggest numbers are probably going to become the, the most popular ones. For instance, a, uh, an article in Smart Asset had claimed that the average cost to raise a child in the U.S. is $20,813 per child per year. That's what they're telling young adults, that that's what it's going to cost you if you have a kid. And so that amounts over 17 years to like $350,000. And a variety of numbers get thrown around. Some of them are more around the 300000 mark for 17 years. But do you understand what that means? Leslie and I have three kids, right? So they're saying that it should be costing us fifty dollars to $60,000 a year to keep our kids. No wonder people are thinking they can't afford to have children. Of course they're not going to think that. But does anybody stop to think about all the families in our society that have made it with multiple children just fine, that don't even make that much money to begin with? That was us when we moved to Eugene. We moved here 
uh, February 2018. It's been six years just next month. And when we moved here, we had two kids. And even when we had Eve the next year in 2019, we were still just a one-income family at that point. And I don't remember exactly what I was making then. It was probably, what, the low to mid-40s, I think, when we first started here. And we were making it. We were making it okay, just fine. We weren't suffering. Our kids were not starving. Like, we were doing okay. We weren't really saving anything at that point. But we were making it, even in a place like Eugene, right? An expensive cost of living. But the worst thing about this really isn't that people think that it costs too much to have children. It's that they don't see the rewards. They don't recognize They don't recognize what a blessing, what a gift children are from the Lord. They don't recognize what a good investment, a long-term reward is going to pay off by investing in this human being that would not even exist without you. The rewards are massive. And so it goes with following Christ. Except the difference is that the cost of having kids is often overrepresented, whereas the cost of following Christ is underrepresented. So when it comes to lies being fed in our society, most often people are hearing that it costs more than it actually does to have children, but more lies are going out there saying that it costs less than it actually does to follow Jesus. But the rewards, the comforts, guys, those are immense Huge. They're so huge that I had to break them up into two sermons. That's why this is part one. Because as we go through the rest of Matthew 10, and and I've already done the costs, and so that's why we're going to be kind of interweaving some in the rest of Matthew 10. But I, I found 11 rewards, comforts that Jesus gives his apostles as he sends them out on mission. And and I just couldn't cover them all. They're, they're too good. They're too powerful. They're too informative to bundle all together in one message. So today we're going to be covering just the, actually the first four, which are really, there's a lot of teaching with those. Before we jump into verse 16, let's pray. God, we ask that you would be, that you would be, work powerfully in our hearts today. You know, last week learning about the cost, that's huge. That's important. We have to have that, but we we have to have this too. Otherwise, we're not going to make it. We're not going to walk through those costs without knowing the comforts that you provide. And so I pray that this stuff would sink in and strengthen us. Because you are amazing. And, And... you, you don't leave us alone in this, Lord. And I, and I can't wait for people to see the, what you provide so that we can walk as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be with us. Do whatever you need to do in us. Help us to get rid of anything inside of us that's keeping us from walking this path. And we ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. We're going to start in verse 16, Matthew chapter 10. It says, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Let's start at the very beginning. A comfort. Right there. I am sending you. What a comfort. We are sent by Jesus. 
That's huge. We need to recognize that. That's something that we need to cling to at all times in our walk with him. Because as we learned about the cost last week, and it is a costly mission, the reality, it, it would be difficult to bear those costs if you were being sent out by me or by the government or, or anything else. I mean, think about this. What if our military recruitment strategy was to go tell our potential recruits that, hey, come join us where you'll get arrested, betrayed, hated by everyone, persecuted, slandered, and killed? It's not a great recruiting strategy. And now don't get me wrong. Like, of course, any country's armed services are going to face great costs, potentially. But they also historically should look forward to being respected and honored by their nation, not hated by everyone. Think about police recruitment. I mean, police recruitment has just gone down the drain. It's, it's in an abyss right now, it's just free falling. And when a society goes from respecting and appreciating police to hating and attacking them, yeah, it's going to be hard to get people to join up for that. And but that's what we see. But the difference is like they're they're thinking like, well, I'm, I'm out here for the city of Eugene or for the state of Oregon or whatever. But we are not. We are sent by Jesus. We are not sent out by the city of Eugene or the state of Oregon or the United States of America. We are sent out by the only one worthy of worship. By the, the only one who's truly worthy of our complete allegiance. He is completely, infinitely, perfectly wise, loving powerful, faithful. He could never and would never send us out on a mission like this in vain. The comfort of being sent out by Christ is that never will our mission be for some vain political purposes. Never will he have the wrong motives. Never will he fail to have all the right intel. Never will his strategy be flawed. Never will our mission not be worth it. We are sent out by Jesus, and that is a comfort that we can rest in because we can trust him. And then in the same verse, it says he's sending us out like sheep among wolves. Now, the Bible teaches also that Jesus is the good shepherd, right? It doesn't seem like something a good shepherd would do, does it? The Bible calls pastors to shepherd the flock, right? And so and one of the Bible's main Goals like our job description is to protect you from wolves, not to feed you to them. And so we might get to that and be like, what is going on here? But don't think about Jesus as some uncompassionate leader who sends us out on a suicide mission to do his bidding. That is not who he is. Let's not forget we are walking in his footsteps, right? He walked this path before us. He died, suffered for us and we would follow in his steps. And we should not be thinking that there's a lack of compassion here. We should be seeing his great compassion for the world, for the lost. The mission is costly and dangerous, but it is necessary so that people can hear the good news about Christ, be called to repentance and be saved from their sins. Like it, it, Jesus isn't sending us out like this because he isn't compassionate it is because he is so compassionate, he sees a world of people who are like sheep without a shepherd, and he wants them to know the good shepherd. That's why he's sending us. 
He knows that if we don't reach them, all these comforts that we get to study this week and next week, they, they won't ever have it. So he sends us out like sheep among wolves. And that's why we need to cling to the reality that it's him that's sending us out and know that he would never send us out like that without good reason. He has the best reasons, the perfect reasons. Be comforted that you are sent out by Christ and not by me. Continue again in verse 16. He says, therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. I've mentioned this verse. I've said for a couple sermons, I'm coming to it. I'm going to teach about it. And here we are. This is a perfect place to start after learning the cost of mission, because when we consider those extensive costs that the world will inflict on followers of Christ, it can lead us into this kind of angry mindset, right? Where we get fed up, we get tired, we get angry, and we might even become belligerent, even militant. And Jesus clarifies from the beginning, like, that is not how I want my people to respond to this broken world. Rather than being foolish and dangerous, he calls us to be wise and innocent. It's something that we're called to, but it's also a comfort because it is available for us. Like we can actually go out like sheep in the midst of wolves and be wise and be innocent. And I wouldn't be, it's okay for anybody to read this and, and still be a little bit confused. What does Jesus mean exactly with that statement? We are sent out like sheep, but we're supposed to act like snakes and doves? Like, wh- what are you talking about? Uh, are we supposed to be, you know, uh, deceitful and sneaky like snakes? Are we supposed to be scary and dangerous like snakes? How are we supposed to be like doves, Jesus? Are you saying that we're, we need to be bird-brained? No, no, no. In some ways we are like sheep. In some ways we are like serpents. In some ways we are like doves. In other ways we're not. When it comes to uh, sheep and serpents, R.T. France said the vulnerability of sheep is enhanced by their proverbial stupidity. But disciples are not to be like that. The snake's instinct for self-preservation by getting out of the way when trouble threatens is a more helpful model. So we are to be not to be foolish and stupid, but prudent as we go out into the world. But even then, D.A. Carson says, but prudence can easily degenerate into cheap cunning unless it goes with simplicity. The disciples must prove not only shrewd, but innocent. Yet innocence becomes ignorance, even naivete, unless combined with prudence. So as we go out into a world full of wolves, we're to be prudent, not reckless, shrewd, but not deceitful, wise, not naive to what we will face. Carson went on to say his followers were to be not prudent toward outsiders and innocent toward God, but both prudent and innocent in their mission to outsiders. In this light, the dove image becomes clear. Doves are retiring, but not astute. They are easily ensnared by the fowler. So Jesus' disciples in their mission as sheep among wolves must be shrewd, avoiding conflicts and attacks where possible, but they also must be innocent, as in not so cautious, suspicious, and cunning that circumspection degenerates into fear or elusiveness. Are we starting to get 
what Jesus is getting at here. And I know even reading that, you can be like, wait, that's still a little bit confusing. So we're going to work from the more confusing to the more simple. And R.T. France said they need the cunning of snakes without the venom. That's pretty simple. We can all understand that easily. Craig Blomberg put it this way. Jesus calls his followers to bravery, but not foolishness. Believers must not seek out persecution. He goes on to say innocent literally means unmixed and refers to purity of intention. Shrewdness and integrity form a crucial combination not often found in the Christian church. In fact, we more often invert the two, proving to be as guilty as serpents and stupid as doves. Makes a good point. So what does all this look like when we put it into practice? As we go out on mission for Christ into a dangerous world where we can expect to be arrested, betrayed, hated, persecuted, slandered, and killed, what kind of posture should we have towards that world? Should it be one where we walk mindlessly and recklessly into danger? No. We don't need to walk. We, we, we can avoid senseless and unnecessary danger and persecution, but that also doesn't mean that we need to get sneaky and hide ourselves, right? Because we're a city shining on a hill, not a light under a basket. That's why, so Jesus tells them, he, he goes on to tell them that if one town persecutes you, then move on to the next, right? And he doesn't say if one town persecutes you, go under it or, or, or just stop doing your mission. No, if one town persecutes you, you don't need to stay there with a martyr complex and suffer just to say you suffered, but move on to the next one and keep about your mission. Furthermore, we're to be as innocent as doves, which partially means that while we move about a world that is dangerous to us, we are not to be dangerous to it. Jesus didn't say, I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves, so get your wolf mask on. You know, get those fangs sharpened. Get those claws out and ready. No, he's like, put your dove face on, guys. They're dangerous. You're not. They bite. You don't. Certainly, this innocence also has to do with our righteousness. We should not give the world any legitimate reason to hate us and persecute us. It should all be for reasons of Christ's name, right? We should remain pure. They shouldn't be able to actually look at us and say, look, we can, you actually are greedy. You actually are a hypocrite. You actually are hurting people. We should be pure. But I also think that we need to pay attention not only to how should we be like doves, but how should we not be like snakes and wolves? Because I think Blomberg is right when he says we can often be as guilty as serpent and stupid as doves. And we, rather than heeding Jesus' wisdom and walking in the comfort of being wise and innocent in this dangerous world, we go out more like wolves in the midst of wolves, right? We're like, hey, listen, we're going to fight just like they do, but we're just going to do it for the right reasons, right? We have good motives and we want good things in the end, but we're just going to be wolves fighting wolves, but we're good wolves and they're bad wolves and that's how we want to do it. But that is not the way that Jesus wants us to do it. We can be comfortable with the wolf and the snake part, but then when, when it goes to sheep and does, we're like, eh, I don't know if I like that. Because we ask ourselves, well, wait a second. How is a sheep acting like a dove going to beat a wolf if we can't bite like a snake? 
We're like, that, that sounds like weak Christianity, right? Like, how are we supposed to do that? We need to fight. We need to bite back. But guys, that is not weak Christianity. Strength, according to Christ, it looks different. We still need to be strong. Of course, and this is where we need to be careful about the voices that we listen to, because there's a lot of voices in our culture that typically represent commonly held Christian values and beliefs. And some of those voices might even call themselves Christians, and they might often talk to Christians about how they should be living, how they should be, uh, you know, approaching the world. But so often those people don't have a fully deeply developed biblical worldview about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so, I mean, there's some people, people that I listen to that are incredibly insightful. They make compelling arguments and they often, their opinions are often line up with what the way that I think about things, but then they think that Christians should be forceful, combative, militant, even not to say that they're like inciting violence or anything like that, but like, about how we should try to force or, or, or push our values in the world. And, and certainly, I agree, we are in a spiritual war, and we should not be weak. We should not be compromising. We should not be cowardly. But what weapons do you use to fight a spiritual war? Use spiritual weapons. And we are called to be innocent as doves, to turn the other cheek. To love our enemies, to leave vengeance to the Lord. The mission that we have been given, think about our mission, is to make disciples of all nations, not to make Christian nations. Are we warriors for Christ? Absolutely we are. But what does being a warrior for Christ look like according to Scripture? 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. It's a spiritual war. So I want us to see that spot between the weak, compromising, cowardly Christianity and between the misguided, militant Christianity that we need to be in. A spot that is strong, but also suffers a lot. At the hands of this world. The spot that Paul talks about what he was living through in 2 Corinthians 6, 3 through 10. He said, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and yet behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, Yet as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing as poor, yet making many rich as having nothing yet possessing everything. We need to understand what it looks like 
to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, to be sheep sent out in the midst of wolves, because there are so many wrong ways to approach the world. There are so many wrong ways to try to expand the message of Christ. There are a lot of Christians, a lot of churches that are cowardly. They've lost their spine. They won't speak the truth. And that is not who we're to be. But there are also other churches and Christians that are just nasty. Their spine is there. Absolutely. They got a strong spine, but their heart's gone. And we don't want to be either one. And and even in those cases, a lot of people, they have good intentions. and, And the things that they want to see in the world are pretty good things, but it's the perspective that's lacking. And so some churches have just caved to the world and they've got it wrong. They've got everything wrong, their their beliefs and their approach. And then others have their beliefs for the most part, pretty strong, but then their approach is off. And we want our beliefs and our approach to be right, both inside and outside the church. That's important because Even then, some Christians, some churches are ironically quite heavy handed, quite bold, even venomous towards the world, but then cowards amongst themselves. They have no problem and want to point out all the sin and corruption in the White House, but then ignore the leaven in their own house. As Paul warns us against, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, of course, we are called to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And that will often be an offensive message. And people will accuse, oh, you're judging us. And the Bible tells you not to judge. No, we are called to call sinners to repentance in this world. How else could we be saved? That's not the judgment that Paul is warning us against here. So we have to be careful. The point that launched all of this is that it's a comfort that we can walk with wisdom and innocence in the midst of wolves. But understand that that is a comfort that's not going to automatically just be there. It's something that we have to gain the right perspective by reading the word of God, by having our hearts in the right place, by staying connected to the vine, to Christ. Because it's not just going to automatically be there. Wisdom and innocence, whenever you're facing persecution, slander, betrayal, all these things, it's not just going to magically be there if you are not staying close to Christ. Because the pull of our nature, of our sinful flesh, is to be foolish and dangerous. So we have to fight that. So that we can stay in that spot between cowardice and hubris. Between fearfulness and recklessness. Between being spineless and being heartless. And we can. Praise the Lord. That is available for us. And that is a comfort that we can rest in. We'll continue in verses 17 and 18. Beware of them because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. So last week we talked about the cost of arrest. But understand that there's a comfort there in verse 18. 
There's a comfort to being arrested, to being persecuted. It's being a witness. There's a purpose behind it. This isn't like being a witness like you were dragged into court because you saw somebody else commit a crime and you have to testify to what you saw. This is being a witness of the life-transforming power of the gospel. Understand this, church. Suffering for Christ is a better witness than life being easy. It is. It is a better witness to the world. Uh, let's go back to what Paul said again in, in 2 Corinthians 6, 3 through 10, and think about how Paul's life and the things that he's been going through is a, is a testimony. He said, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, yet we are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. You see what Paul is trying, he's like Corinthians, Corinthian church, like understand this is what we signed up for, guys. And, and, and what you've seen us enduring is a testimony that Jesus is real, that his words are true, that our faith is not fake. Because they could see what they were enduring because of Christ. Last week, we looked at the way that the apostle, the, the common traditions of the way the apostles died. When we think about the, the apostles, the men who were with Jesus who would go on and then suffer being tortured, being persecuted, and killed for their faith. Why would someone do that unless it's true? You might think, well, well, people die for things that aren't true. You're right, yeah. People die for false religions. Muslims will give their lives for their cause, but it's not a direct comparison. You see, because the apostles actually knew Jesus. They were there. They were with him. A man who claimed to be sinless, who claimed to be God, who died and then rose again. And they know whether that was true or not. They were with him. And if he was not who he said he was, it makes no sense for them to suffer in their lives and to, to die for him. You might walk that path for someone that you think is the real deal. But you absolutely will not walk that path for someone you know is not. And that is their testimony. Paul and the apostles, think about them. They're not like the global elites who fly to Davos, Switzerland on their private jets and then try to come up with ways to enact carbon taxes on the rest of us. And talk about how to eradicate poverty while they stay in their $1,500 a night hotel rooms. Like the apostles... Their life proved that their faith was real, that their cause was real, that Jesus was who he said he was. Unlike the fakes whose lives prove that everything they're saying is a bunch of hogwash. 
And our life can be that as well. Let the world say what it wants to say. Make the arrests. Tell the lies. But when we don't compromise, when we don't give in, when we don't bend the knee, they will see that our faith is real. That our house is not built on the sand. That we will testify that Jesus is Lord. He alone is worthy. He is the pearl of great price. The treasure that was buried in a field that a man found in the field and then he reburied it so that he could go sell everything that he had so that he could buy that field and have that treasure. That is who Jesus is. And we can testify to that through our endurance, through our suffering, through the way that we respond. And that is a far greater testimony than living your best life now. Life being easy, think about it. Life being easy, your body's being healthy, your bank account's being full, your career taking off, your kids being quote-unquote successful. It's really not much of a testimony to the world. I'm not saying that it can't be a testimony, but it's not the best testimony. It's really kind of like Job's testimony was before he suffered. And you remember what happened there at the beginning. Remember the argument that Satan made from the very beginning about Job's testimony. Go back to Job 1, verses 8 through 11. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord, uh, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you made a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But reach out with your hand now and touch all that he has. You'll see it, God. He will curse you to your face. That, that was his argument, right? And that would be the world's argument against us if, if walking with Christ meant life being easy. Be, well, of course, of course, Christians are going to go to church and read their Bibles and give and, and, and live in all these certain ways because look at what it gets them. What kind of testimony would that be? It, it would cause people to question whether... Our motives are even in the right place, right? But think about Job's example, his testimony after he went through everything that he went through. At the end of the story, did, did Satan come back and try to keep arguing with God? Well, well, he, he doesn't fear you for nothing, you know. Absolutely not. Job's testimony silenced the arguments and the accusations that Satan had to throw at him. And ours can too. I mean, why, why is that book even in the Bible? Is it because Job had a, a, a other translation, that's where the hedge of protection idea comes in, a hedge around him and everything that he had because he was blessed and he had this good life? Is that why the book of Job is in there? No. It's because he endured what he did and he kept his faith. And the Lord teaches us about suffering and he teaches us about himself. And our testimony through the cost of our mission can serve in a similar way and silence arguments when we endure. Let's continue in verses 19 and 20. The last verses that we'll be looking at today. 
But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to speak, for you will be given what to say at that hour. Because it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit of your Father is speaking through you. We have a wonderful comfort of knowing that when we are dragged before the courts, or thrown into prison, or awaiting our deaths, or whatever it might be, we can be carried by our Holy Spirit. And that's wonderful because I am not strong enough. I can't do it. I would not be wise enough to speak well in those times. If it was my flesh carrying me through these costs, I would be scared and I would be angry and probably belligerent and I would want to act like a caged animal. And and so just the, the idea of facing arrest or imprisonment or torture or death and being calm, collected, peaceful, joyful and wise It's so preposterous that I know when it happens, I can say, well, that's the Holy Spirit doing it because it's definitely not me. And this is what we see in Scripture. We see it with the very first recorded Christian martyr in Stephen. Look at what happened in his life in Acts 7, 54 through 60. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, what they heard was Stephen just preach a message calling them to repentance for what they did to Christ. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And standing, Jesus standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, meaning he died. He couldn't have responded like that unless... He was full of the Holy Spirit. And I know that in 2 Timothy, they're not the, the last words of Paul, but they did show how he viewed the end of his life. In 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, through For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. It's these kinds of words that our brothers and sisters before us could speak and could write because the Holy Spirit was carrying them through. And those kinds of testimonies have continued on throughout the centuries. And I want to share some of them. I want to share some more last words of martyrs throughout history for Christ. In the second century, the last words of Sharbil of Syria. Christ, be merciful to me as you were merciful to the penitent thief. Receive me like those who have turned to you as you have turned to them. I have entered your vineyard at the 11th hour. 
deliver me from judgment. Let your death, which was for the sake of sinners, restore me to life again in the day of your coming. Second century Ignatius of Antioch. My desires are crucified. The warmth of my body is gone. A stream flows whispering inside of me. Deep within me it says, come to the Father. Near to the sword, I am near to God. In the company of wild beasts, I am in the company with God. Only let all that happens be in the name of Jesus Christ, so that we may suffer with him. I can endure all things if he enables me. I am God's wheat. May I be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts until I become the fine white bread that belongs to Christ. Second century Apollonius, the apologist. I enjoy life, but love of life has not made me afraid to die. There is nothing greater than life, that eternal life, which gives immortality to the soul of the righteous. Third century, Genesius of Rome. There is but one king I know. It is he that I love and worship. If I were to be killed a thousand times for my loyalty to him, I would still be his servant. Christ is on my lips. Christ is in my heart. No amount of suffering will take him from me. Fourth century, Julita of Caesarea. Let the estates I own be ravaged or given to others. Let me lose my life and let my body be destroyed. Rather that I should speak one word against you, O Lord, who made me. If they take from me a small portion of this earth and its wealth, I shall exchange it for heaven. Roland Taylor was a minister in the 1500s. There's not much left about him. But what we do know is that before being burned at the stake for teaching the Bible, he wrote a letter to his family. And this is what it said. I say to my wife and to my children, the Lord gave you to me and the Lord has taken me from you and you from me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I have ever found him more faithful and favorable than is any husband or father. Trust in him. By means of our dear Savior's merits, believe, love, fear, and obey him. Pray to him, for he has promised to help. Count me not dead, for I shall live eternally and never die. I go before and you shall follow after to our eternal home. The last one that I want to read is from an anonymous source. We don't know who wrote it, but we know where it came from. It was found in the clothing of a dead child at Ravensbrück concentration camp. And it said, O Lord, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. But do not remember all the suffering they have inflicted upon us. Instead, remember the fruits we have borne because of this suffering, our fellowship, our loyalty to one another, our humility, our courage, our generosity, the greatness of heart that has grown from this trouble. When our persecutors come to be judged by you, let all of these fruits that we have borne be their forgiveness. Forgiveness. 
These are the kinds of things that our spiritual family before us could say and could write. There's no other explanation other than they were being carried by the Holy Spirit. They experienced a peace that surpasses understanding. It's something that the world does not get. They do not. It doesn't make sense to them because first they have to deal with the why question. Why would you go through this? Why not just recant your faith momentarily? Why not tell them what they want to hear? Why not bend the knee? Like you do understand that they can't actually change how you feel and what you think and what you believe and who you worship in your heart. So why not just pay the lip service and move on with your life? And we say, because you're talking about our Savior. And that testimony, that testifies that our faith is real. That it's genuine. Because you can't fake it through that. But then even if the world can get through the why question, they have to deal with the how after that. How could you go through this in this way? Other people die for their false beliefs, but I'm telling you, they're not peaceful. It's like fearful, wishful thinking. But the world can see us and they, how, how could you go through this? How could you not be scared? How could you not be angry? How could you praise the name of the God who's letting this happen to you? And that is an even greater testimony because it testifies not only is our faith real, but it's effective. It's providing something that nothing in the world could provide. And so when you choose Christ, it's going to cost if you want to do it right. If you want to really follow him, it's going to cost. But he's the pearl of great price. He's the treasure buried in a field. He's worth it. Next week, we get to continue digging into the comforts of our mission, and we'll get even more into the eternal comforts that we look forward to. This week had a lot more to do with the present comforts as we walk this treacherous path. But again, I mean, I I know even as I speak these things, it it, it continues to illuminate our minds and our hearts about what the costs really are. But be comforted. The comforts are immense. They're far greater. And so we can go out like sheep in the midst of wolves. Because Jesus is sending us and he gives us everything that we need. So be comforted.